So we're in a series of messages. We've been working through uh, the chapters in a book by an author named Mark Middleberg. Uh, Mark attends uh, a church in our denomination in the Denver area, and he has uh, written several uh, books on sort of Christian faith and uh, how to share your faith and what all what this is kind of all about. And so he was uh, reading a survey, a national survey of Christians where they were asked, uh, what are the questions you, you most hope no one asks you about your faith? And so Mark took the answers to those questions and uh, basically formed a book out of each one of those questions. He grouped a couple of them together, etc. And so we've looked at some fairly, you know, intense or controversial subjects over the course of the past eight weeks or so. And uh, today we come to the topic of heaven and hell. Uh, Interestingly, every culture in, in the history of civilization has had some concept of heaven. And if you, if you surveyed people, if you, so if you looked at like a Gallup poll of Americans, um, just some ridiculously high percentage of people believe, yes, there's a heaven. A significantly lower percentage of people believe that there's a hell. Um, and not all cultures all over the world have, have well-developed ideas of hell, although some do. Um, But this idea of life beyond death, that this is not all there is, is fairly universal. And there's a very, very small percentage of people who who seriously doubt this or who who refuse to believe this or uh, give any credence to this idea that life goes on beyond what we experience in, in this world. And so... The, the question, I think, for most people who might be asking it is, is less about whether there is life beyond this life and more about is the Christian idea, of the, is the biblical idea of heaven and hell, is that valid? Is that a valid framework for whatever happens beyond this life? So I want to... Uh, I want to take you to a passage in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16. And Jesus is talking uh, to a group of people, and he is uh, sort of overheard by some religious leaders of his day. And he sets forth this little story, and I, I should tell you the story that he tells is fictional. He's He's making it up, if you will, to sort of prove a point. That doesn't mean the story doesn't have truth contained in it. It just means that Jesus, for the sake of uh, convenience in in delivering a point, uh, uses a little piece of fiction that he creates to uh, sort of tell us something. And the reason I point that out is that there's, in some cases in church history, a little too much has been made of this passage. Um, uh, and and we, we shouldn't take it as a, a literal framework for eternity, but rather we should 
we should learn what truths Christ is trying to instill in us through this part of his teaching, this part of his word. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, and we're going to look at just one of the places where Jesus taught on this subject of heaven and hell. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. But in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. All right. Heaven. So, Going back to our little object lesson with the kids, we're going to make all the same assumptions, a little little bit of a twist. Um, When you think of Christianity well-expressed, well-lived out, someone who embodies the essence of what the Christian faith looks like in real time, give me a couple of names that come to mind. Mother Teresa, interesting. Okay. I just happened to have her name on this piece of paper. I did not plant that observation. I, I think this is fairly universally observed, right? I mean, we, we all have some level of regard for her faith, for her Christianity, for her grasp of the gospel. Uh, you know, we may not agree with all of her theology, but, but dang it, she got it. Right? We, that's kind of hard to argue with. Okay. So if, if the stairway to heaven were built by our works, by our good works, by our faith lived out in real time, 
where would you put Mother Teresa on the, the, the scale? How? Well, okay, in heaven, okay, so you would just send her right to the top, but the top is perfection. She earned it, all right? Uh, have you ever read anything she's written? She is, she is one of the most self-effacing people I've ever read. And, and she talks about herself as a dreadful sinner, as a, a tormented, selfish uh, soul. I, I don't, it, would she let you put her up there? No. Where would she put herself? Down at the bottom. So let's average it out. What do you say? Can we agree on that? Can we do that? Can we average out Mother Teresa here? All right, we're going to average out Mother Teresa. Sorry. But uh, we're, we're, so this is like that, that game show where you yell and it goes higher and it comes down. You want, you want a little higher? Right about there? Right about there? Is that good? Is that good? Everybody, everybody's cool with that? What's that? Yeah, <laughs> the, car, the car is up there. Sorry. All right, Mother Teresa is going to have to walk. No big deal. She's used to it. Um, Okay, now let's bring this home a little bit, and, and uh, if you've read the book, if you've read Mark Middleberg's book, this chapter, don't, don't, don't answer, but uh, if, you were, if you were thinking of Americans who embody what it means to be a great Christian, anyone? Oh, Billy Graham, I'm going to shoot you who said that. All right, somebody said Billy Graham, right? We're going to go with Billy Graham. I did not print out Joel Osteen's name. That would have been great. I wish I'd have thought about that. Okay. So good old Billy. He's, he's still alive and kicking, isn't he? Yeah. All right, good on him. Um, okay. So here's a good question. Where are you going to rank Billy against Mother Teresa? Everybody, everybody, this is universally agreed. All right, anybody want to want to want to bump Billy above above Mama Teresa? No, no, no. Close? No. Halfway? Right about there. All right, I actually like Billy Graham. I think I think he's. We have to be able to exercise good judgment. That's, that's biblical. Okay. All right. Now, what about your pastor? Hold on, hold on. I'm with you. I'm with you. Right about there. And I've got bad news. I've got bad news. Wherever I am, that's where you are. All right? Okay. So, did anybody make it? No. Um, you know, and if, if, if I was going to, if I was going to nominate someone uh, from church history, it would actually be Patrick 
who's often called Patrick of Ireland. Um, just I, I would put him pretty far up there if if I was doing if I was into that kind of thing, you know. Um, so there we are, and quite honestly, Mother Teresa would not dig this at all, right? She would be um, on the floor and let you step on her, okay? Um, so in a way, this is just kind of a, a silly exercise, but, uh, you know, I think heaven is something that is on everyone's mind. We all think about it in one capacity or another, and so let's go back to this story that, that Jesus told, and <laughs> you know, interesting little lesson that he gives, right? Um, but let's 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 first just kind of stop and think about this. Let's consider the source of that teaching. That Jesus taught about heaven and hell more than anyone else in scripture period his his major theme in everything he taught could be loosely phrased the kingdom of god the kingdom of heaven okay and then his teachings about heaven and hell that we really you know we don't have a very well-developed theology of hell in the Old Testament. You have some hints, you have some pretty clear passages that point to heaven and hell. But when Jesus comes along, this is one of the topics that he thought was most important. He came back to it perhaps as a, as a teaching tool more than anything else as he tried to elaborate on the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God was his main theme, and this idea of heaven and hell was his main teaching component to get people to understand that theme of the kingdom of God. Um, he spoke about these topics a lot. And I think part of the reason is he, he knew that, that everybody cares about this subject. Everybody thinks about it. Everybody's tuned in to the hereafter. We all wonder. We all hope. We all think. So as we consider the source, and let's say that you're being asked this question by someone who is um, not a Christian, and, and they're saying to you, what's, what's the deal with heaven? What's the deal with hell? What's going on? Why, why is that so important to you? Okay, I, I think it's fair to, to say in, that, in your response to that question, look, this was a really important topic to Jesus. Who was Jesus? Even, even, for example, Muslims would agree that Jesus was a great prophet and a great teacher. Okay, So you can't get much more universal recognition of an idea than when you get every major religion agreeing that Jesus was a good teacher. Gandhi even agreed that Jesus was a great teacher. So... If Jesus was a great teacher, um, he was a great teacher for, for two reasons. He knew the Jewish scriptures. 
He knew the word of God inside and out. And in addition to that, he came to fulfill the Jewish scriptures. He, he came with a, a knowledge and an awareness and a purpose to his ministry that was about the fulfillment of everything that was already in the Bible at the time he was born. And so this guy, this great teacher, his main topic, if you will, was heaven and hell. So it's important. It's, and everybody should pay attention if Jesus really was a great teacher, regardless of whether they agree with all of our theology or not. If Jesus was a great teacher, then he has something to say about his perhaps most common topic. All right. Not only, though, was Jesus a great teacher, he was and is also the one true God. And so we have this perspective from Christ, and he says this in a couple of places in the New Testament, where he is the one who came down from heaven and then stands in a unique position to explain to us this afterlife because he's been there. He's the only one, he says this, he's, I'm the only one who's, who's been there who's here to tell you about it. And so he has an unusual perspective, a unique perspective as the one true God. He lived a sinless human life and offered himself as a sacrifice and then he rose from the grave. So the resurrection is, is sort of the, the credibility anvil of Christ that he just kind of drops in front of us and says, there, I, I did it. And, and once we grasp that, that, that he was one of us, that he was sacrificed for our sins, and that he didn't stay dead, but he rose again from, from the grave. When we grasp that, we, we are in a, a, a position of awe, quite frankly, where we look at him and say, okay, I bow, whatever you say. Um, I'm all in. You, you've proved it to me. Uh, your grace, your forgiveness is so real, I really don't have much to argue with anymore. And so when we're talking about heaven and hell, I think it's important to recognize the source of this teaching. The, the number one contributor to the Christian understanding of heaven and hell is Jesus himself. Um, and he was very purposeful in what he, what he did and what he taught about that subject. Okay, so that's the teacher. Let's consider the lesson that he's trying to, to get across. Uh, first, and, and very simply, uh, there is an afterlife, right? That came through pretty loud and clear in, in the story he told. Um, there is an afterlife. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And... We'll do it this way. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And he, he was looking at this idea of, of sin and 
God's perfection and, and the, the distance that is created between us and God by our sin. Um, Lewis put it this way. He said that, uh, well, thy will be done. That's the phrase. That's the phrase. Thy will be done. And heaven is, is full of those people who stand before the cross and recognize what Christ did for them, and they say, okay, thy will be done. Hell will be full of those people who God looks at and says, okay, thy will be done. Have it your way. Um, you know, I, I've, I've created this beautiful world with enough of my signature on everything I made for you to be aware that, that there's more to this life than what's just in front of you. And in that act, I loved and I created humanity as the object of my affection. And here you are, and um, here I am. Uh, if you don't want this, okay. Thy will be done. And so those are Lewis's two sides of thy will be done. And I think it, it sort of creates a, a good understanding of, of this dividing line that Jesus is talking about. And if you want to read the, the ninth chapter in the Middleburg book, he, he, he just goes through a, a whole litany of passages where Jesus is teaching about heaven and hell. And, and they're all very convicting, they're all very revealing, they're all very clear. But at the end of the day, we have the greatest teacher the world has ever known conveying this simple truth to us, that there's an afterlife, there's a heaven, and there's a hell, and that there is an accounting to life, that we are responsible before God for, for who we are, for what we do, for how we live, for the ways we treat other people. Um, and Jesus uh, is very clear in this passage that he teaches to these, this crowd that this accounting is fixed at the point of death. Now, Christianity has gotten into uh, a few different holes over the past couple of millennia over this question. Um, the church used to teach that there was this place called purgatory, and that if you, you know, when you, everybody dies, they go to purgatory. And purgatory is where you kind of work your way out of your sin. And, and then, uh, and, and there's, that's nowhere in this book, by the way. You, you cannot substantiate the doctrine of purgatory from Scripture. You have to go elsewhere to, to do that. But nonetheless, um, as, as soon as this, this third nether world was created by Christian theology, uh, guess what Christian leaders did? They used it to manipulate people, all right? Uh, primarily, they were looking for, for the stuff that goes in here, okay? And as the Christian church was, was trying to um, build some great cathedrals and do some 
allegedly great things, they were running out of money. So they told people, you can buy this thing called an indulgence, and you can buy it for your grandmother or whoever you want, and it will reduce the amount of time they have to spend in purgatory. Well, I love my grandmother. I don't want her to suffer. How much? Right? That's, that's a pretty easy, it's a no-brainer. Um, but unfortunately, Jesus, in this little passage we just read, says very clearly to the rich man, um, the, the deed is done. It was your works on earth that determined your standing for eternity. And there's no way to get from there to here after life. And so uh, Jesus sort of puts to bed any, any idea of purgatory or any, any real means of manipulating people into buying forgiveness. Um, there is an accounting Jesus teaches us, it's fixed at the point of death, and it's based on either your life or Christ's life. And that's not directly in that passage, but you do see the contrast between Lazarus the beggar and the rich man and where each of them goes. And uh, I'll I'll bring that out a little bit further in just a minute. But, uh, okay, the great teacher and perhaps his greatest lesson um let's jump back to the book of psalms chapter 14 verses 2 and 3 it says this the lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand Hmm. who seek after god They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Sorry. And we're back. So God puts us all in the same starting point. Let's consider that for a minute. This starting point that we all share, where no one is perfect, and the standard is perfection, and and some cosmic jerk greased the ladder, right? So no matter how hard we try, We don't get very far. We always end up in the same place. Um, Okay. So, there is none who does good. That means we all have sinned. This is our starting point as clearly as I can put it. All of us are deserving of hell. That sounds like a really harsh statement, doesn't it? Um, and, and, and it begs the question, well, how, what do you mean? I thought God was love, and, and what, what, I don't get it. How could a loving God send people to hell? Here's, here's the beginning of our understanding. 
that, and actually, so this is this is kind of interesting if you're into theology. I, I, I don't fully agree with everything Mr. Middleberg says in this chapter, but we actually completely agree on this point. We put ourselves there. That's us in our humanity, in our sin, in our fallenness. That's where we are. That's a universal starting point. So it's not that it's not that God is is cosmically sending people to hell. He's looking down on the sea of humanity and saving some from hell. And there's a huge difference there in in what it tells us about the nature of God. That we've already condemned ourselves. This is our starting point. And unless the cosmic hand of grace reaches down and pulls us out of that place, we're unable to get from there to there on our own. And so that's one component of this of our understanding of heaven and hell, that we're all in the same pool and no one is perfect. We've all sinned. We all are deserving of the same fate. Now, let me take you to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is going to get ugly really quick. seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable I'm sorry immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast let's consider for a moment the solution to our spiritual state. That God, being love himself, looks down on his creation and says, Oy vey, what have you done? Come on, people. Let me solve this problem for you. I've got this. And he descends into humanity through his son, Jesus Christ, offers a sinless life as a sacrifice through which we find forgiveness and grace. He takes upon him the punishment that was our own. 
As we consider the solution that is offered to us in Christ, we realize that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, not through trying to be Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or please don't try to imitate Pastor Tom. Bad idea. Um, But salvation comes through Jesus Christ entirely by his power and entirely by his grace. And here's the, I guess, where it gets weird. God chooses, for some reason that I don't fully understand, to work this truth through us. So here's what I mean by that. You do not have to look far to see a planet going to hell in this life. You don't. Um, You can just look at what we do to our planet, uh, for starters, in the name of greed and profit and whatever. Um, And God says, I want my love to reach the farthest ends of this earth. But I'm going to do it through you. And we might go, well, I got a better idea. Why don't you do it? Because you're not going to screw it up. You'll get farther. You'll be more effective, more persuasive. Why don't you come back from the dead and do this for us? And therein lies the total irony of this whole thing. Jesus did, in fact, come back from the dead. And he inhabits us. He is a living Christ. We are his body. And we are called to take his grace to the farthest edges of the world. And next door. Right? So, how do I say this? God's only vehicle through which salvation goes out into the world is us. We're it. So let me turn that around. This is going to make you feel a little bit squirrely. You are the hope of the world. Do you know why? Because the living Christ dwells within you by his Holy Spirit. We don't do this for pretense. We don't do this for comfort. We, we do this thing called church. We, we, we struggle through it. We give to it. We sacrifice for it. We, we enter into conflict over it, and we work towards resolution for it because we get it. This is 
place where the presence of God lives on earth. And he calls us to take his grace to the world. And so, yeah, we've got some crazy guy who is in, uh, I'm not allowed to tell you what country he's in, but it's in the Middle East. And if, if he's figured out by the government there, he could be executed. And he's got his wife and his kids, and they live there solely for the purpose of communicating the grace of God to one or two people a year. Because the alternative is hell. And so we're called into the freedom of Christ, but with the responsibility to carry his love into this dark and hurting world. Will you pray with me? God our Father, we are humbled and we confess that we don't know why you would call wretches such as ourselves. But we thank you that your love stands eternal. That your grace is available to us through Christ. And that in that forgiveness and light, you have called us to the responsibility of sharing your love. And Lord, we don't know why you would choose such broken vessels as ours. But may your light pour through those cracks. May your grace flow through the holes and pour out over the lives of others. Because we don't want to be the only ones there. We want what you want that heaven would be populated with all imaginable kinds of people and that we would be your instrument in bringing that to bear in this life. In your son's name we pray, amen.